Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Here are the two main issues that Democrats have been using for the last, let's call it, I don't know, two years. Trump bad and COVID. And apparently now the public is done with COVID uh, where we're not done anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's just not like an issue anyone wants to hear about. Yeah. Um, and Trump bad, in my opinion, is like a much, much weaker argument. So there's a, a fundamental narrative that someone uh, walked me through that I, I tend to agree with. Um, this is one of the premises of my presidential campaign, actually, was that people are getting more and more fed up and they're casting about for some kind of answer to the fact that stuff's not working and government's not really delivering. And th- this has energy on the left and the right and all over the place. Mm. Um, and so you could use this as certainly an emblem as to why Bernie um, was very successful. And then, of course, the corporate media and everyone tried to sandbag him. It's a reason why Trump was so successful that people are, are fed up and will elect a person who's just like, I'm just going to, you know, blow like, it up, blow it up and break things. The, this person made an argument that it was one reason why Obama was successful against Hillary um, uh, as like a change agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people have been casting about for this alternative and being frankly, fed up and disappointed um, and getting... He had no experience. And I, mean, getting, I, mean, and, I like and getting, Obama a lot. And but. getting angrier and angrier all the time because like the the it's not delivering. And there's like this system that is built up to try and keep anything from changing where the people are trying to change it and uh, not being able to do so. And so now, now like democracy itself is kind of disintegrating. We are back on the podcast and we are going to be talking about election day results. We're recording this on election day itself. So some of the results are unclear. Uh, But the race that everyone is looking at is Virginia's governor race. And it's right now too close to call. I'm told that it might actually take a minute to count these votes because it's going to be tight. But just the fact that it's tight actually is an enormous story in itself because this is a state that Joe Biden won by 10 points. It has gone from purple to just about blue. (laughs) And so the fact that we think there's a good chance that Virginia gets a Republican governor uh, in the next number of hours or days is a huge deal. Or it's gone from blue to just about red? Because it it was 10 points blue, right? So I guess it was a blue state. I don't know, this is fascinating. Yeah, it tends a lot. So tends a lot. But th- this race is being 
hailed as the future of American politics because it's a pretty good litmus test. Uh, Virginia is you could use it as a microcosm of the country. It's got some rural areas, it's yeah. got some urban areas. A lot of people who are essentially commuters to DC live there. So there's like this whole wealthy set of suburbs uh, that mm-hmm. is maybe like the most hotly contested battleground. You have a Republican candidate who's, I'm going to call him, this is what came to mind for me. Okay. I don't know if this is right. I'm going to call him a Mitt Romney Republican. Ooh, the, the, I think the, that's the, right. The, Glenn Youngkin, the challenger here. Yeah, he's a, a tall private equity guy, uh, wears fleece vests, uh, yep. kind of sells himself Chinos, as like a relatively hair. normal dude. Uh, you former know, CEO, private equity guy like Mitt is a former CEO of the Carlisle Group. Yes. So he's much more Mitt than Trump. That is for sure. Uh, and then he is squaring off against the once governor, Terry McAuliffe, who's a Democratic institution. And you can see <laughs> that with the panoply of Democratic luminaries who came and campaigned for him. Everyone came. They all came. Obama, Biden, mm-hmm. Kamala, anyone who could draw a crowd in the Democratic Party was showed Kamala up. there? I Kamala, Kamala that was makes there. Sense. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a pretty quick commute for them, too, from the White That's House. That's true. It's an easy... Yeah, to get to Virginia. But Terry McAuliffe is a big effing deal in the Democratic circles. I chaired a CNN set with him multiple times. Oh, so uh, you know him. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm friendly with Terry. Oh, cool. And he has everyone's number in his phone. Right. He's, like, he's, he's, he's an institution. He was the governor already. Now, Virginia has a rule where you can't do it again until you take a break. <laughs> it's kind of sort of interesting. So he was governor until 2018, and then he did something else, and now he's like, and I'm back to be governor again. Mm-hmm. But the people of Virginia are not exactly uh, jumping up and down for joy, apparently, that Terry's back, at least you know, maybe not 51% of them. Uh, and so there are a few things that we should dig into here that do augur for the future in America. And number one is that Democratic enthusiasm is kind of on the lowest side. Uh, compared to Republican enthusiasm. I'm going to make an argument that they're not thrilled about Terry 2.0. And you could argue, like, he had a pretty seamless and well-favored first term, let's call it. If you call it, I guess it's the first term, right? 2014, 2018. He was well-liked. They thought he'd be a shoe-in in a plus 10 Democratic state. And that is not the case. Um, so... Maybe you talk more about what Terry stands for, and then I could give a rundown of what well, where one, Glenn's at. What are you thinking? One of the interesting lenses that people have taken to this Virginia race is that, in part maybe because it's so close to D.C., that Democrats' inability to pass the infrastructure bill uh, really is hurting Terry. He's dropped since the— Because what the argument is that if Democrats can demonstrate that they deliver— then that's a better case for Terry. And if they can't seem to deliver, then it's a weaker case for Terry. Right. I thought this was an interesting argument, um, but there there were a lot of people making it. And Terry went on record saying, please pass something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he bashed him. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, hey, like, let's, let's show the people what we can do. That has not been delivered prior to Election Day. So they're saying that could depress turnout. On the other side, the Republican wedge issue that has energized their base is schools mm-hmm. and uh, critical race theory being taught in schools. Terry McAuliffe had a quote saying that it should be not up to parents what's being taught in, in schools. It should be up to teachers and administrators. And that quote did not, not fly well. well. I actually talked to Evelyn about this um, mm-hmm. where I was like, hey, if a politician were to say 
that it's not up to parents what's taught in schools. It's up to teachers and administrators. Like, how do you react to that? And, and you know, there is some nuance, like some things you probably do want, uh, you know, just for schools to decide, you know, things, things that are, um, let's say, fact-based. I mean, you, you don't want them teaching, like, different forms of, I don't know, biology <laughs> yeah. or, or something. But... Um, but this this certainly falls into like a, a zone where I think parents would feel like, OK, like I should have a say of what's going on in my kid's school when it when it's um, around something like race. Uh, and so this quote has really hurt Terry McAuliffe. And they're saying that if he loses, this would be his like deplorables quote. Mm. They look, I, I think the, the, the rational mill here is you want to empower great teachers and great administrators to create a great positive learning environment for kids. But at the end of the day, they work for the public. Public school teachers work for the public, same way that firefighters and police officers do too. Um, and certainly if you're a parent, you don't want to hear that it's not up to you. Yeah, this is stuff that's taken out of context. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a bad quote. So um, there's a bit of a boogeyman effect where it's like, you know, are you sure that these schools are actually teaching critical race theory in the mm -hmm. way that it's being described? A lot of them apparently are not. Right. Um, but it's an issue that is animating voters and Republicans are seizing on it. And I will say if Glenn Youngkin prevails, they're going to seize on this all over the country because if they can make this case successfully in Virginia, they're going to try and make it everywhere. This race is fascinating because like a microcosm for, well, one, it's a national race now, but it's a microcosm for the future of both the, the Democrats and the Republicans in a certain way. So Glenn is running, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, is running as I call like your you call him Mitt Romney. It's like your rich guy conservative, right? Where it's, and he's done objectively a really good job navigating, let's call it the pro-Trump side of things and also appealing to moderate Democrats who are coming over and independents and moderate Republicans um, in, this, in a bunch of ways. So he's relatively moderate. He says he doesn't support abortion, but frankly, he's not the type of guy to do anything to mess with it. He's against a Texas law. He's, you know, he's, this is not a priority for him. Like he navigates the social issues, social conservative side of the Republican Party. Um, he's pro guns, like pro Second Amendment, but the NRA has not endorsed him. Like it's that kind of moderate situation. Um, and the point is, and that's what I want to talk about is in races like this or in any race, the why matters most, in my opinion. Like, why are you running? And he is running. His why right now is I'm a concerned former businessman. Um, that's concerned with how our kids are being educated. And his one of his slogans has been parents matter. Um, so he's frankly navigating these culture wars, um, critical race theory, which we can dive into, um, but also education in our kids. And that's his why. He's like, this is stuff that hits parents every day. And I want to be a governor that supports parents and not overreach of government educators and the like. And I don't know what Terry's why is on the other side. Like, why is he running? Is it and that seems to be from listening to Biden's stump and Obama's stump is that it's still Trump bad. It's still Trump bad. Right. And, and, and that's so, hard. So, so this is one of the tough things for Democrats is that their strongest argument right now is defeat Donald Trump. Yeah. And Trump's not on the ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, they're having a hard time lashing Glenn Youngkin to Trump uh, because they seem like different humans. Mm -hmm. um, but they keep trying. Uh, and so if you're making a negative argument, essentially, it's like, help us defeat Trump, we're not Trump, um, then people do start to ask, okay, like, what are you for? And Democrats are having a hard time delivering. Mm -hmm. And so that's a less compelling argument. But I, I want to say that Terry is in some ways really an emblem for this. It's like Terry is not generating a lot of excitement natively. 
And so they're trying to bring in the star power. Uh, and so th this is like the new democratic playbook. It's like, hey, you might not get excited about anything I'm talking about in terms of a real life agenda I can deliver for. You might not be that excited about the candidate, but we're going to bring in some people that might excite you and uh, you have to help, help us keep defeating Donald Trump. I mean, that, that's like really a tough place to be. There, there's something very much missing from the democratic uh, solution set or energy or playbook um, because the, this case is just getting weaker and weaker uh, you know, I, I said something to myself, I guess I didn't really say it that much, but it's like, it, it's like Democrats had an easier case where you can blame everything on the crazy person. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, like, let, let's get him out and then everything will be better. But the problem now is that he's out and people are still sad and like, and angry and looking around being like, okay, you guys are in charge. What's happening? They haven't been able to deliver on any major uh, promises, you know, I, I'm, in terms of like some of the big ones that, that right. they ran on. And, and that's one of the dangers of this polarization is that you end up saying, look, that person's bad, we're, you know, good, let's say, and then we're going to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and then you get in there and then you, you can't do deliver those things. And then everyone's like, well, then wh why did you gin us up like this? Why did you get us all motivated? And they'll be like, oh, but we need you to vote again right now, right now. And then people are like, um, I'm not really sure I'm feeling that, <laughs> you know? I mean, there was a story that came out about them trying to sign up black voters in Georgia and saying that they're having a really hard time because uh, they, the voters are like, well, you know, I did this last time or, you know, my, my friends did this last time. And what did we get? And what they were waiting for is, you know, something around either voting rights or police reform or criminal justice. and They haven't seen it. And so mm -hmm. then they, they get less motivated. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more.
you'd say when you went to the Midwest and you talked about being a Democrat, you know, like the Democrats can win back voters in the Midwest if they do things that actually impact people's lives. And one of the things that's interesting to me is on local races, people know what life is like. Like the governor does have executive authority to do a lot of things that touch your daily life in a, in a state, in many states. Um, uh, mayors as well, these executive functions. So if the Democrats are running on these national issues like climate change and defund the police or which is it should be a local issue in many ways, but um, or Medicare for all or Trump bad. Right. Um, that doesn't necessarily touch your life specifically. Right. As much as like the curricula that your school. Right. And kids parents is. matter hits your life. Right. And there are like, critical race theory. There's a lot of like it's a. It's now a catch-all term that means too many things to different people. So people saying strong opinions on it, they probably can both be right in many ways and how it's defined um, or not defined. But um, I, th I mean, seeing, even if they're one-off small boogeyman cases, but you're seeing kids being told that their skin color is something that makes them evil or less of a human or whatever it is, that's something that hits parents real hard and the I, government I, can affect. I had Governor some very, very middle-of-the-road friends who are um, upset that their white daughter came home and essentially asked, like, why uh, can't I be friends with my black classmates? Um, in and how old is the daughter? Eight, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, and be because they're being taught, essentially, that uh, that they are not the same, that they uh, have this uh, apparently, like, real power differential where the eight-year-old white girl has been made to understand that she needs to be much more conscious and cognizant about the black girl situation and it's made them both self-conscious by the way she was actually already friends with this black girl before yeah uh, you know some of the these uh lessons came down the pike and then it, it seems like their friendship now is supposed to be different or conscious of this element so she came home and, and asked her parents like why can't i be friends with my friend anymore and her parents obviously were horrified and angry being like of course you can be friends right. with with the, the uh classmate you've already been friends with and so then they went to the administration being like what the heck is going on in the school and they got a response that was pretty much like no this is the way it's going down and so, you know, there, there are parents that, you know, that I know that have had this experience in real life, right. some version of it. So is that happening in schools uh, in Virginia uh, to the extent that it would move voters? I don't know. You know, some of it definitely is just boogeyman creation where, yeah, the, you know, the, the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I can say that it's happened in real life uh, in um, my own network. So it, it's not out of the realm of possibility that something like that's happening in households in Virginia. Terry was pressed by a, um, a black reporter on local TV station to define, he talked about how critical race theory is not a problem. And the woman said, well, can you define it? And he refused to define it. And that's one of the biggest challenges you have where the actual academic of critical race theory, where it came from was an academic term used in postgraduate studies, frankly, in law schools to basically more be more critical about social outcomes and a number of outcomes through the lens of race, which I think to the average person, like that makes sense, right? Like race is a factor. Um, to be then dumbing down versions of that for young children, um, there's more of a debate there. And I think how people define CRT, and Carly and I did an episode on this, um, it depends where you're coming from and how you want to define it. But Parents are emotional about their kids, right? And they see this stuff. They see one, they freak out. They're going to their school board. And you can, this, 
what what they're what they're talking about in terms of teaching this is actually transcending racial lines. It is not just the white parents getting upset about that. That may be the majority, but there are plenty of a, black parents a, a number, who also right, find, of, find of all races. very very problematic. Uh, yeah, it, it, one of the major issues here is that people are defining in different ways. It, it's just become a political punching bag. Right. Uh, but I, I will say this issue is a loser for Democrats. Yes. Like it's, it's a they don't loser. have the right side of this. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so that that is one piece of advice I'd have is that d- Democrats, uh, you might want to try and define this in a way that you can either full-throatedly say, hey, I'm for it and this is what it is. Um, uh, or say, look, there are elements of this that we, we agree are not um, something that we want to necessarily uh you know, fight for mm-hmm. um, at the the polls, but right now the, this is just something that that's just going to be used by Republicans um, in, in a way that, frankly, like stands up to the point of view of more families, more parents, mm-hmm. more Americans than than the opposite. And when you get so, the big thing is that this is that, and this is where I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on like institutional trust and our trust in the media. Like a lot of the press on this race. Which specifically national press is saying that Young King is Young King is dog whistling to the right um, to the to the racist you know pro Trumpers. There's another one that said I'm going to read this headline. It was in the Guardian that was uh, Young King's success is based on uh, the term was white backlash, which is um, based on either CRT or various uh, let's call it racial cultural lines or boogeyman, whatever you want to call it. And I don't. I think some of that is is probably true in the sense that he is like, I mean, intelligently trying to not piss off the far right of the party, so they'll turn out and vote for him. But I also think, to simplify it that way, just on just racial lines, and uh, this is a right. Well, way, well that's one of the favorite thing things tough. about uh, about the media is the media wants to racialize everything. The the media just wants to treat everything and turn, and also they want to take any behaviors of a certain type and then categorize them as capital R racist. Mm. Um, and that's true for certainly most anyone with an R next to their name in the form of Republican. Um, so the, this is just, and this is one thing that we touched on last week, is just the media has certain narratives they just want to beat like a drum all the time. Mm. And race is one of the main ones because it animates reader emotions on one side or the other. Yeah. It, it gets you to read it. Um, and so as long as that's the dynamic, I mean, there, there was an article that came out where it talked just about things that will tap into your emotions as being the best for increasing digital subscribers, which makes sense for a lot of these media organizations. And race was toward the top of the list. I'm sure. It's a tribalism. I will say, I mean, I will say this, like, there's some truth to it, right? Which is part, like, there is, like, one of their last ads. So one of the hot button issues has been the book, Toni Morrison's Beloved. Um, in high school, I think it's high school AP English. It was unclear on what they're actually talking about um, in terms of the age. But it's a book that has a lot of graphic sexual violence and I think bestiality. It's like a very, very, but it's well, obviously beautifully written, um, but dark um, reality of, of, of slavery in that entire, in that era and that story. Um, but the the ad they run is a, it's a white woman in a like, crew neck sweater with the gold cross on talking about how she's scared of not, I don't think she even mentions the word beloved, but like the types of material being taught in schools. And there's like panning shots of her, like all white super waspy family over the fireplace. It's like, 
the catering to that like that strong demo. So that was a Democratic ad. Or that was a Republican ad talking about how uh, basically there was a bill that would ban that would require parental approval for these types of books in or or like a disclaimer when these types of books or materials being taught in schools. And Terry vetoed this bill, I think twice. Um, so she's talking about this impact on her son, and it's emotional. Thought it's like a little jarring, but it's also. Uh, I mean, it's hitting a certain demo, right? Pretty hard. Um, it's, it's it, you know there is. I'm, I'm not saying you know what's right or wrong. You're you know, it's a, it's a war, if you will, but it is a tactic, right? I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that that's a real ad. It was one of the big hot button issues down the stretch. Yeah, it it's an appeal to a certain type of voter. Um, you know, I'm sure they have numbers showing that it's effective. I I happen to think that uh, reading those kinds of books is generally a good thing. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think about the books that I, I Well, read. I think it's fair to say like, hey, this is like adult stuff and you guys are, the kids are 17 and 18 and it's AP English and letting parents know like if you have questions about this is new things. Which I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I think if, um, like, I, you know, I remember reading like even like Night growing up was really I mean, intense, right? Certain books I read like uh, by Eli, I can't remember. Eli Bizel. Yeah, but about the, like there's stuff you read and it's, it's it, that sticks with you, right? I think it's really important to read when you're young and discuss. Um, yeah, that is one of the points. You know, they identify great, impactful works of literature, and a lot of those things are going to end up treading upon some tough water. Yeah. Um, but I, here's the thing. I mean, I think this is the point. Like, talking about this is something that impacts every parent, right, in their district, for good or bad, right? And talking about Trump bad does not. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, so here, here are the two main issues that Democrats have been using for the last, let's call it, I don't know, two years. Trump bad and COVID. And apparently now the public is done with COVID uh, where... We're not done anymore. Yeah, it's just not like an issue anyone wants to hear about. Yeah. Um, and Trump bad, in my opinion, is like a much, much weaker argument. So there's a, a fundamental narrative that someone 
uh, walked me through that I, I tend to agree with. Um, this is one of the premises of my presidential campaign, actually, was that people are getting more and more fed up and they're casting about for some kind of answer to the fact that stuff's not working and government's not really delivering. And th this has energy on the left and the right and all over the place. Mm. Um, and so you could use this as certainly an emblem as to why Bernie um, was very successful. And then, of course, the corporate media and everyone tried to sandbag him. It's a reason why Trump was so successful that people are fed up and will elect a person who's just like, I'm just going to, you know, blow like, it up, blow it up and break things. The, this person made an argument that it was one reason why Obama was successful against Hillary um, uh, as like a change agent. Mm -hmm. um, and so people have been casting about for this alternative and being frankly, fed up and disappointed. Um, and getting, He had no experience. And I, mean, getting, I, mean, and, I like and getting, Obama a lot. And but. getting angrier and angrier all the time because like the, the, it's not delivering. And there's like this system that is built up to try and keep anything from changing where the people are trying to change it and uh, not being able to do so. And so now, now like democracy itself is kind of disintegrating yeah. um, because you have these giant entrenched institutions that will try and keep things from changing. Uh, they have like a media arm that, that try and um, send certain messages. Uh, and the, so this was a case that was made to me that I generally agree with and believe. Uh, it, it was one reason why I thought that, um, you frankly, my presidential campaign would actually get some wind beneath our wings because it's like, oh, people are fed up. People are ticked yeah. off. People want something different. Yep. Um, now I believe that all of the things I just described are deeply tied into the duopoly mm -hmm. because if you're a powerful interest, you're like, okay, I've got the Republican Party over the Democratic Party. I donate to both. Like I, I can keep this thing more or less <laughs> under uh -huh. control. Uh, and so what, what we need is a multi-party vibrant system and different points of view. By the way, it would help address some of this polarization too and some of the issues that you're seeing in Virginia where people are, are using certain um, cues and, and uh, being cast on different sides of, of these issues in very emotional ways. Um, so do you have a prediction as to what happens in Virginia? Since we're recording this before the results are out. So we're recording this now. We may sound like idiots if McAuliffe like, runs away with it. Um, but as we kind of hammer their strategy, I think Yunkin rolls. I think it's a wake-up call for the Dems. That's my call. In my opinion, this should be a wake-up call no matter what. That's, but it should already be a wake-up call. Correct? Really, no matter what, that this stuff is not working. Um, as for who pulls it out, I mean, uh, I, too close to, to call. I think we're going to be waiting for a minute. I think that whoever loses is going to contest it, and then uh, we'll have a little bit of a <laughs> waiting know. game. That actually will be interesting to see if there's if it's close. Because um, one of the things, Youngkin has been navigating you know, the far right and that sort of thing, but trying to navigate whether or not he believes Biden actually won the election and um, has kind of refused to answer that question and kind of skirted it, and it's, it's, it's uncomfortable for him because he knows a lot of the base doesn't believe it, right? Um, but the big mega trend that overlays all this, in my opinion, is that the uh, pessimism uh, and uh, apathy are going to go up. Like the the Democrats' ability to make their affirmative case about, hey, this matters, we're going to deliver for you, vote us in, vote us in, is getting weaker. Uh, and that's you know just a, a sign of where we are. It's also a sign of the polarization and the rhetoric where if, if again if you get everyone super ginned up say like hey the fate of the world is on this election and then you win and then you're like wait 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 no the fate of the world is on this other election mm. the fate of the world is on this, this election. election and then that like then everyone's like oh 
you know, and uh, you know, like that, that's just an increasingly hard case to make. You know, I think a lot of this stuff comes down to it's compelling candidates with compelling reasons to to run. I think, um, and Youngkin has a compelling reason to run right now. He's like for the family piece of things. Um, it doesn't seem like Terry does. I think India Walton in Buffalo is a really good example. People are like, how could she win? She's a socialist or X Y Z. This is a candidate that they're. She won the primary, and now they're the Democrats are trying to. At least some subset in, of the Democrats have uh, like written written in right the, in the incumbent. Guy she she beat in the primary. Um, but the reality was, she was a compelling candidate with a r- strong reason to run. Like she, you know, got a whole bunch of people in the primary to vote for her and believe in her. Um, period. The end. Like that's that's what happened. So and, and there is something very very important about this, which is that Democrats sometimes don't seem very lowercase d democratic. You know what I mean? It, it's mm. like it's like, hey, you you lose in the primary. You're like, well, you know, I, I lost fair and square. It's like, no, no, like th- this election, not uh, not right. Um, or it's like, what people choosing Bernie? No, 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 like that. That's not right. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, no, they're t- yeah, that's yeah, a good point. Yeah, yeah. No, there, there is like a a, a real anti populist sentiment within the Democratic Party. Some people call it the corporate Democrats, where it's like, we know best. We're kind of paternalistic. No, no, you voted for that person. That that's not what you're supposed. That's to not do. what you meant. That, that, yeah, that's you didn't not mean what you that. meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so this is something that the Republican Party does seem to have over the Democratic Party, which is the Republican Party is like sorted out. What's that? You elected this person that you know is a little bit out there. All right, I guess yeah, we're guys, we're riding with that. Will the people? Yeah. Whereas the Democrats are like, no, no, no. Like you know, like we 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 can't allow that. Uh, and I think that's one reason why, again, we need to change this dynamic because you're going to have a Democratic Party that's kind of at war with its uh, with itself as a result because there's like this layer of people being like, this is what's appropriate and this is what's not appropriate. And, uh, and then people getting more and more pissed off and fervent. Uh, on one side of it, and the Republican Party, for better or for worse, has essentially gotten swallowed up by the <laughs> by, by like the <laughs> you know like the fervent opposition, um, and the Democratic Party is trying to present itself as like the you know the mature adults in the room and the professionals and the rest of it. And you could make that argument in some cases that that is what they represent. Um, but one of the byproducts of that degree of maturity or experience is also a, a sense of incrementalism around the, the big issues, maybe in part because there are a lot of very, very big corporate interests who already have their hooks in you and like, mm-hmm. hey, go slow, go slow. And you're, you're like, yeah, yeah, right. Go slow, go slow. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, the biggest thing in D.C. right now that exemplifies this is the fact they couldn't get this freaking lower prescription drug uh, uh, provision into the into the mega bill mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the pharma lobby's there. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it, it's one of the causes of frustration. I just want to point out the Democratic Party, um, it really doesn't seem to like lowercase d democracy as much um, as you would hope. Uh, and one big push for us, in my view, is trying to transition to a more lowercase d democracy by having more parties because mm-hmm. you're in a lot of environments where the Democratic Party is the only show in town. Let me ask you this. I saw... I just went and saw To Kill a Mockingbird, the play. So Aaron Sorkin wrote the play, and Jeff Daniels is in it, and he's Atticus Finch, and it's awesome. If you're in New York, it was like not that expensive. It was dynamite. Um, one of the, So I don't know if this is in the book or not. Um, it's been a while since I read the book, but one of my, my favorite quotes from the play, at least, and maybe it's in the book, it said, uh, Atticus Finch says, um, a person is smart, but people are dumb. Um, and he was talking about basically the wisdom of the mob and uh, that mob mentality. 
and that may kind of tie into what you're talking about, lowercase d democracy and sort of this like paternalistic aspect of our parties. Like thoughts on how you navigate that? Because I do think the mob can just be completely irrational. In China, they're like, yeah, the crowd is dumb. We're going to have the, you know, 10 of us or whatever the number, we're just going to decide for you and how things work and you have no say. Uh, Thoughts on how you actually balance that? And is it ranked choice voting where you actually have more options and that a little more dynamic or what, you know, how does that, how do we solve for this? Uh, it's tough because I think people at this point are very fed up uh, and some people want very, very significant changes, but our institutions aren't really designed to deliver those changes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like a reasonable summary of of where we are. Yeah. Um, so in my view, the challenge is to make our institutions capable of delivering what people want to a much higher degree than is currently the case. Mm. That's a big, big challenge. Uh, some people who who have been looked at it being like, oh, you know, that that's next to impossible. But I, I think our two choices are for people to essentially just like trash and tear down these institutions and blow them um, up, yeah. uh, blow them up, or make them deliver, get get with the program. Um, that that's pretty much the choice. And so you have two very difficult um, choices. You know, it's like n- neither of them um, is easy, but you know, you'd rather pursue the second. I will say this, if you're the Dems and you valued this race as a party, you got to get some damn bills passed before the before election day. You've had your time. You know what I'm saying? Like if they pass a bill, I think McAuliffe can probably yeah, at, at least talk least about message. it. Sure. Yeah. And so Terry is, in my opinion, like the emblem of the Democratic Party. Um, he's up there. You know, he's like it in many ways, at least from a, at a state level, right? Um, no, no, he's, he's up there. He's a right? very, very big deal. The so if he loses, it's, uh, um, I don't know what to call it. Kind of a... It's a very, very powerful uh, referendum, sign of what's I guess, to come. Referendum of like, or a reality check for the Democrat Party. You yes, know? yes and yes. Um, and again, the, even, even if he ekes it out, I don't think Democrats should take from that, like, oh, it's working. We still, did it. It's working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what did again, you say? This, this Holding out, hanging on by a thread is not a strategy. Yes. Uh, hanging on by a thread is not a strategy. And uh, again, this is a state that Biden won by 10 points. I mean, this is not a Trump-loving state. What's a better strategy, uh, hope and change or hanging on by a thread? I, I prefer hope and change. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Those are my only choices. <laughs> I just remember, what was it? Was it hope is not a strategy? Was that... Uh, I think that's a business saying. Hope it's not a strategy. That was, no, that was what the Republicans said to, to mess with Obama. Um, I'm just trying to remember when it was. Anyway, not the point. Moving on. Um, uh, other than this and politics, I, there's a bunch of random things going on in the world that I think it'd be good to get your thoughts. First of all, you were back in Iowa, man. How was Thank that? Thank you, Team Iowa. Thank you, Yang Gang. It was glorious, man. Just a trip down memory lane where I, I got to uh, see the site of Yangapalooza where... <laughs> I rocked out with Weezer and hundreds of Yang Gang from around the country. Mm-hmm. I, I saw staffers from the campaign who were, you know, in other parts of the Midwest who just came back for this event. So it was a, a bit of a reunion. Uh, it was wonderful. It made me really glad that I went to Des Moines, you know, had, had a great night, a great event, a great driving around campaign for a local candidate. Pizza Ranch. Pizza Ranch, yes. Yep. 
Um, so thank you to everyone who fueled the campaign. Uh, you know, it, it was fun being back at the site of so many of our high watermarks, including the Wells Fargo Arena. Liberty just I didn't go inside the arena, but mm, just I, but I, I remembered walking from the ice rink to the arena. Mm. Uh, Beto dropped out like you know a couple hundred feet away. That's true, and then we. Um, went in and, uh, you know, like the Yang Gang was out in force and the rafters. Uh, and, uh, you know, I delivered one of the more memorable speeches of the campaign. So being back was fun and uh, it made me appreciate how much we accomplished. I have not, I haven't st- stomached being able to go back. Uh, my worst Iowa memory was when it was negative 30 degrees. Uh, the, the advice from public health officials was don't breathe outside don't so, breathe or your lungs will freeze up and bleed yeah i was breathing through a scarf um, uh, it, was, it was minus 30 negative 30 guys um there's something called a bomb cyclone i think yep it was out like and there's apparently there's an actual weather turn uh no thanks uh love you iowa but i don't know if i can do it i did i i was in iowa that day trying to campaign and even iowans were like you know fuck this i'm not yeah well carly was saying like she would she lived in like college town and there were like girls going out in like it wasn't negative 30, but let's call it like negative five, zero, whatever it is. Yeah, and they're wearing like little skirts to go to the bar. And she's like, no, anyone, no guy, no bar, no party is worth what you're doing to your body right now. <laughs> so uh, no thanks. But anyway, uh, good to be back. A uh, couple other things that are interesting. Um, and, and they're all adjacent or right on topics we've talked about before. But this one, that was funny. It was a Twitter, I don't want to say spat, Twitter conversation between elon musk and the head of the one of the senior leads of the un i think the children's fund basically saying that um basically there's a conversation around taxing the billionaires to solve more social problems elon musk gets a ton of pressure or flack for not giving enough to charity which i don't know well exactly the, there was a fair. cnn piece that said uh if billionaires gave a uh, certain amount of money. I think it's $6 billion. It would cure world hunger. $6 billion would cure world hunger. And Elon Musk clapped back. <laughs> Elon was like, hey, if someone can demonstrate to me that this is true, I will donate the $6 billion and sell Tesla stock to do so. And then a uh, leader of the World Food Program said, look, the headline is not accurate. You, you, <laughs> you cannot cure world hunger with $6 billion, but you can feed the most food insecure $42 million. Uh, yeah. It would solve geopolitical instability, in his words. His name is David Beasley, um, who is his WFP chief, which is the UN World Food Program um, situation. Anyway, that's his job. Um, and Elon suggested, look, if you can demonstrate to me where all the money goes, like uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do, it. do it. Um, so this made some news, some headlines. It didn't get his... I mean, CNN was, was a piece. There was some thing. But to me, it was... Um, I think was missed where there's all there's a ton of headlines on billionaires not giving enough xyz but then literally one finally says okay yeah i'll give the money if you show me that it would work and the answer is oh no it wouldn't work and that's what's like you you put out some of the fire but it would just go right back up to starting again well the the headline was just a little bit sensationalistic yeah. which uh, you know it's like cure world world hunger for x amount of money <laughs> Um, and we all instinctively are like, well, can you really cure world hunger for that mm-hmm. much money? You might be able to feed people for a particular period. Yeah. I suggested that Elon give the money to give directly and then have all the money flow through to various people in the developing world. I thought that would be a, a really nice win. I think Elon's actually kind of warmed to that sort of thing because mm-hmm. Elon's not an institution truster. 
mm-hmm. and so if it was like, hey, look, all your money is going to go directly to a person, I think he'd prefer it. I will say, having met with Elon, I'm highly confident that he does not have a giant philanthropic organization around him the way that most billionaires at that scale do, mm-hmm. where you know they'd have like people and a handle. I don't think Elon has that. <laughs> I think I've, I talked to a COO when we were on the trail. I think he has a, a like a donor advised fund and a couple like infrastructure, which is where you can give like Tesla stock, you can give securities, um, and you you get the tax deduction. The money's gone, but then you just can give the charity yet at your convenience and have it there and it can grow tax-free. It's an interesting vehicle. Um, but here, I, I want <laughs> to pull this out. So Dave Beasley, this guy was talking about the head of the World Food Program, the UN, said that this is like the, the public spat, like thousands and thousands of people are, are retweeting and liking this. Elon, with your help, we can bring hope, build stability and change the future. And my skin crawled when I read that because that is the crap that you get from the charity, work. I'm gonna call them the charity experts, if you will, the nonprofit operatives who are doing great work and they and they mean well and they're they're nice and lovely and they're 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 saints many times but that's what does that mean we're going to bring hope build stability i guess that one maybe is a little more tactical and change the future like so vague it's just tug on your heartstrings type operating but in practicality the way you'd actually fix world hunger i think you'd have to bribe a whole bunch of people right like you've got food you know individuals being deprived food in, in various countries that are being controlled by people who have the resources, right? Yeah, and that, that is one of the concerns is you go and you try and help and then the uh, corrupt leaders end up just stocking all the food yeah, uh, you know, and, and doing things that don't help the people. No. Uh, you hope the UN has a direct pipe to a lot of these folks, but I think we all sense that that isn't always the case where uh, you know, the, the leadership of a country can um, sometimes inter- intercede in a way that's not good. So that there are... Yeah, the, I mean, my hope really was that Elon proceeded and gave the money to some good cause. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that does really hit home for you is that at this point, he's publicly supposed to be worth $300 billion or so. Um, for him to donate $6 billion is 2% of his net worth, mm-hmm. which is actually very doable. And you're like, oh, he actually could do this. Right. Um, so I, I hope that he ends up doing something super positive at that scale. Uh, and I, I wanted to recommend different approaches if he decided that the United Nations numbers weren't buttoned up enough or right. satisfactory. I mean, this is the existential challenge is actually solving some of these problems. It's hard. It's complicated. Um, well, but one of the interesting things about this, too, is like a lot of people respect Elon um, and admire him because he's trying to do something species altering, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, and having met him, he's genuinely just wants to do something species altering. He's like, look, you hit the fast forward button long enough. We screw up this planet. We got to get to the next planet for the preservation of the species. Yep. So that's what I'm about. And I, I think a lot of people love that about him and also sense that if we left it up to our current institutions to accomplish the same task, they'd probably be way, way, way back on square one, whereas mm-hmm. Elon's already in square 18 or whatever. So uh, so that that's in some ways the conversation that's being had is you have this institution, uh, the United Nations uh, World Food Program, that's like, look, we need money to do X, Y, and Z. And then uh, someone like Elon's like, okay, like From if we were to do it, like how, how like how do we do it? Um, and uh, someone I think in the same article said like, look, you got a you got more than six billion dollars in the last period, and there's still world hunger. Yep. So that there's like this. Um, institutional mistrust that, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that built up. And so Elon, it's like you kind of know what you're going to get with him. And so a lot of people are like, okay, like this is just a human doing human things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this point, we could use more humanity 
uh, in a lot of areas. This is one of the big themes of the last number of years for me. It's like humans versus institutions. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of places, you know, in American life where they're trying to say, no, no, can't trust humans, can't trust humans. Here's like the institutional layer. Yeah. That, that's going to safeguard here's us. Here's the org that will help us. Or here's like the pipes or like the, the the rest of it. And then some of us now are like subject to these institutions being like, wait a minute, I don't really love this institution. I don't mm-hmm. think it cares about me. It doesn't seem to give a shit about me. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, 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 settle down, settle down. You 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 don't know as be- as well as we do. And then more and more of us are like, like I would really love an alternative. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then someone like Elon's walking around being like, I'm like a walking, breathing alternative. Mm-hmm. I'm like my own freaking right. force of nature, the rest of it. And some people are like, yay, like and a you know, person. Yeah. yeah. And then some people are like, boo, this person. Yeah. It just drives me nuts that, and maybe that, I don't know, maybe this is like my, like, it's tough for me to boo a guy like Elon. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Where he's like, hey, the world's melting, so I'm going to build a car company better than anybody else, and I'm going to leave all the IP open for everyone. Um, and look at it now. Electric cars are a thing. Like, yeah. there's advertising for them, like, we don't need gas anymore. And it's he, not just him. It's he, everyone. He's, he's literally advanced the species um, uh, already, So and he's continuing to do so. So, like, being mad at that strikes me as really kind of bizarre and expecting someone to be perfect either like also what? bizarre someone on the line we just it's like if you have the capacity to advance the species um you probably have um some you know like uh different uh aptitudes than other people and maybe some gaps but like you know we should take that as part of the package and still be very very glad that he's doing his we thing should be grateful That's the last thing I want to talk about. Um, it was something we we were in San Francisco a week ago, I guess. At this point, um, so we have a lot of people probably listen to this podcast who live in San Francisco. So this is what I want to say, and I'm curious your thoughts. So I've been told like, oh, San Francisco is like kind of on, it's it's the homeless problem in San Francisco is getting out of hand. It's kind of unlivable in certain parts. And you hear that and you're like, oh, it's overblown or they're exaggerating or you're just like a pansy, like you deal with it, like homelessness is a thing everywhere. And then we went there, we drove through downtown San Francisco and both of you and I who have been to tough, I mean, been all over this country um, and we've seen poverty, we've seen homelessness at every level, Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, like all over it. Um, our jaws were dropped, both of us. It wasn't speechless because we were like slurring words trying to describe what we were watching, but we were in shock how bad it was. Uh, Thoughts on that? What the hell happened in San Francisco? I don't know, um, but just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, this is something I think is very important for uh, American society generally. So there, there's an attitude right now where conservatives are just telling horror stories around crime in their media. Right. You can see it in Fox New York Post just being like, oh, um, uh, these horrific shootings, this incident, that incident. By the way, those things generally true. They, they did happen. Yeah, And then uh, in... Other left-leaning media, it's like they don't talk about uh, the crime in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's like an omission of it, in part, I think, because it doesn't run along with like particular narrative that uh, all failures are systemic and not individual, and that um, you know that that uh, and that th- those issues don't agree with a particular narrative that they'd like to present. I'm going to tell a story about my being in San Francisco several weeks ago, mm-hmm. which is not long ago. So. I went into a Walgreens, Walgreens, looking for some toiletries and maybe, uh, and it's at ice cream sandwiches. I love those things. They nice. sell them at Walgreens. So I go into the Walgreens and then um, 
I hear and feel like these heavy steps with someone running towards me, which you've all felt that running out of an aisle um, towards me. So I just stop so I don't collide with this person. Um, and it's a person who's robbing the place, uh, runs out with a bag full of goods. Um, and there are a couple of employees around and they just kind of look at the person, don't really do anything kind of half-heartedly. And the person just runs out of there with a bag full of stuff. And I was like, Oh, we just robbed this Walgreens mm -hmm. in front of me. And then someone looked at me and literally just said, San Francisco. Uh, and then I later found out that the authorities of San Francisco have said that they will not prosecute any crime where someone's stealing less than a thousand dollars. And so thieves know this, so they just rob $800 or $900 worth of stuff and just uh, run right out. Now, this happened to me in my you know first trip into a Walgreens. Then the following week, Walgreens announces that they're closing that Walgreens and four other Walgreens because they're just getting looted all the time, um, which I'm sure the employees on one level were shocked by because they lost their jobs. All the people in those neighborhoods that used to, by the way, rely upon those Walgreens for their uh, daily needs or whatever. Very, very sad. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if that stuff gets reported. I do know yesterday I saw a friend from San Francisco who left San Francisco and uh, he just said, look, you know, it just wasn't worth it. Um, and so that stuff I'm not sure gets reported. Um, but there's a, a real phenomenon going on in San Francisco that anyone who spends time there is, is conscious of. And with a conservative media, look at it and, and use it as a punching bag saying, look, look at this blue city, one party town. They can't control crime. They have homelessness problems. Like, look at the, the, these failures. Uh, and then Democrats look at it and say, like, oh, look at these, you know, conservative uh, media outlets just with their talking points. Like, no empathy. What about the systematic failures that failed the person that stole from the from the Walgreens down the list? Yeah, uh, or some version of that, I'm yeah. sure. The numbers. Um, so, but what's happening in real life is just people are voting with their feet. You know, like my friend who left San Francisco is like, and eh, not worth it. Yeah. I now depart. Um, mm -hmm. And so you have people who have that mobility, which is not everyone. A lot of people are, can't leave. So uh, the folks with the most resources flee. And then the people who are left behind look around being like, what the heck's going on with this place? Um, and, and there's no real accountability to the uh, public officials or authorities there. It's just their tax base fleas and they're like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Like, I, I mean, the, like the, the harder problem would have been, I'm going to suggest like trying to stop the robbing of the Walgreens, not by the way, make a public pronouncement that you're not going to prosecute anything le less than a thousand bucks. You know, now th that, that would have been harder, but probably vastly superior as an approach to the current essentially like, you know, like we're not going to uh, prosecute what, I, what they consider minor crimes. Uh, and um, that's the kind of issue that, that's happening in part because our media has gotten so politicized that they can argue about the truth to that extent. Uh, and you do look at the conservative media and you're like, ah, oh, fear mongering. It's a little bit like, you know, over the top. Um, but then you look at the Democratic media and you're like, why are they not talking about this? Like, this is actually a thing. Uh, and uh, there has to be some kind of middle ground or reality. This, this sort of thing makes me so mad. So Walgreens, one example, like, look, Walgreens has enough money they can pull out. It sucks, but it's a rounding. Error. I mean, again, I feel bad for both the employees and the residents. But yes, continue. I agree with that. But if you're a local, you have, you put your blood, sweat and tears into starting a camera business, right? And you sell electronics and camera gear and someone could walk into your store, steal a thousand bucks, run right out. And the cops are going to do nothing and no prosecution because it was less than a thousand dollars. That should be infuriating for yeah, everybody. I agree. Um, and I think... 
this is one of my problems as as a dem as just like a I guess former Democrat if I'm now an independent with you, but uh, uh, nice. <laughs> I don't know where I am, man. Uh, politically homeless, probably. Um, Forward is going to continue. Someone who's like, I str- I've always struggled with the f- the left on f- figuring out where the line is. You know what I'm saying? Where like w- in terms of what's right and wrong, or what the party fundamentally stands for, and then like, no, no, we're not going to compromise any further than that. And the right has their line. The line is Nazis, right? Like the the Nazism is like, okay, that's that's bad. And like along the line, it's either good, but it's a little more gray. But that's like they have the line. Like we've gone too far. On the left, I don't know what the line is. I believe the line should be robbing and calling that okay, right? And looting stores and and being okay with it. But um, it's it's a little more challenging. But having no line to me is unacceptable, right? Um, because I do think that leads to a version of communism where we're trying to get to equal outcomes for everyone and no one there's no incentive to work anymore because if you start a store people can just steal from you and you, i don't know like that i don't know I, I don't know enough about what the line is and that's why i kind of like fumbled down the stretch here but curious everyone's thoughts and yours specifically well i'm with you on and caring deeply about small business owners and proprietors and whatnot because they're typically families often immigrants themselves is trying to make something yeah. work uh and watching those stores die or restaurant shutter really breaks my heart because I just see like a family's dream dying uh, and nine times out of ten they put tons of blood sweat and tears into making it work over years um, and, and, uh, and and one of the things that I complained about when I was a Democrat <laughs> which I'm not anymore um, was that small business owners could not stand a lot of what the Democratic Party uh, stood for because mm-hmm. they, they would just think that the Democratic Party is always just bashing business of any kind. And, right. and like, I love small businesses, I think. And then some some politicians would always be like, small business is the backbone of, right. you know, like uh, our, our society or whatnot. But Which, then when push comes to shove, then they like, what do they do for those uh, businesses? Uh, you know, not not as much as uh, I think that that should have been done. So, uh, I you know, for, for me, obviously, you know, like like putting a rubber stamp on people stealing uh, above a certain um, or um, or below a certain amount is yeah. is is completely the wrong approach because it sends an awful signal uh, and people heard that signal loud and clear yeah um, is the reason there's no accountability there because it's it is a one party city one party state or the sense that like your your leadership is just going to follow to the party ideology and if that isn't be tough on crime in the city, then we're not going to be able to fix it. Well, so here's my experience talking to police officers. I've talked to a fair amount of them. You have? Yeah. So police officers will do their jobs um, as they're directed. So if a police department gets uh, an order saying like, hey, let shit go, they'll let shit go. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then if they get an order saying, hey, like we have to be vigilant about X, Y, Z, and now we're going to enforce that, they'll be like, all right. Like, uh, you know, if you give me the resources and backing and to do that, do it, yeah. I, like I'll do that. Uh, you know, and they will sometimes say it's like, I, you know, for me to be able to deliver on that, I'm going to need uh, some support. I'm going to need this, I need that, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, and, and maybe like, you know, yeah, like the, some kind of confidence, really, mm-hmm. some kind of provision that like we're in it together and that if something, for example, uh, you know, like uh, goes wrong, it's not that uh, people are going to lose their careers and, and the rest of it. Right. Um, so in, in so in many ways, it's much easier for a leader to adopt the let shit go tag, and then the cops would be like, "Oh right, like you know, leader wants to let shit go." Then like, what am you I know, gonna do? You know, yeah. well, what am I gonna do? 
um, because the the okay, let's get in the weeds and try and solve for this stuff ends up giving rise to like a bunch of issues that are going to be difficult and fraught and and maybe politically, um, you know, uh, emotional uh, yeah. and and the rest of it. Um, and so the path of least resistance really leads to something like San Francisco, in my opinion. That's terrifying. <laughs> you know, like that, because we see that across the country in various cities. Well, um, my, most police departments would never do what San Francisco is doing. I mean, um, or certainly I don't think any mayor would come out. Like, even if there was like a, a, a policy, they would never, ever breathe a word about it. Right. Yeah. Because uh, a, a lot of the deterrent is around people just believing that stuff is going that to... You're correct, right? Yeah. They believe in, in authority um, and rules and rule of law, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, um, a lot of times we do... Um, when we do talk about problems on this podcast or I talk about problems with you, we end up coming down to a number of solutions that would just help tremendously and they usually include these two. It's universal basic income and... Re like ranked choice voting or like breaking up the Political duopoly reform. is kind of where we're at right now um, because that probably would offer it would offer dynamism um, well you might have some competition you know, solution yes you know because that, that's, that's really one of the problems you don't have meaningful competition it, things are getting a tough you know like it, it's a tough run it's going to be a tough time uh, I you know I'm a pretty optimistic guy but uh, I think even if you're optimistic, you have to see some of the things that are going on and be like, huh, like this, this is not great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's end on a positive note. What are you excited about between now and next Thursday? It could be anything. I'm going to have some fun. Um, so, <laughs> well, a couple Saturdays from now, November 13th, uh, I'm doing a book talk here in New York City. That's right. My first one in New York. It's going to be happening. a blast. Uh, we'll kick off some new dates pretty soon. Uh, I want to get back out there as soon as I can uh, because it's just been such a joy meeting people. So I'm excited about that. I like that. Yang back on the trail. Taking this show on the road. Yang back on the road. <laughs> we will see you soon. All right. That's our show. We'll be a little more positive next week. Love you guys. Love you guys.